The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. We're talking about an issue that couldn't possibly be more timely because just this week, President Obama vetoed a piece of legislation that would have allowed the building of the Keystone XL pipeline. And, you know, some of us are tuned in. We know all there is to know about the Keystone XL pipeline. But a lot of us, you know, may have heard the term but not know a lot about it. And so today we are going to talk about the Keystone XL pipeline, what happens next after this veto, because it's certainly not a dead issue. So for anybody who has had questions about what this headline means and you were afraid to ask, class is in session. We are going to go through it soup to nuts. Our guest today is Anthony Swift, and he is an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, also known as the NRDC. And we're going to be talking through this issue so that by the time we're done with this episode of Go Green Radio, you will know all that you need to know about the Keystone XL Pipeline Project. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Anthony. I'm so glad to have you on the show. It's great to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. And, you know, as I mentioned, this was a big week for Keystone XL. The president vetoed a bill that would have allowed it. Um, But congressional leaders have already sent out signals that this is not the end of the line for the pipeline. So I'd like to start with some rudimentary information um, so that our, our listeners are well informed. Where would the Keystone XL pipeline be built? And what do local landowners in the vicinity of the proposed project think about the placement of the pipeline? So the Keystone XL pipeline would actually connect uh, the tar sands of northern Alberta uh, and go down through Canada, uh, enter the United States through Montana, travel through South Dakota and Nebraska, and connect to a, a pipeline system owned by TransCanada in, in southern Nebraska called Steel, in Steel City. Uh, and this pipeline has been... Uh, well, landowners all along the route have had major issues with the pipeline, both uh, because of TransCanada's treatment of them in the in the process. Uh, one issue that hasn't come up uh, uh, in the news recently is that uh, TransCanada has actually had to stop its eminent domain uh, proceedings in Nebraska because uh, of landowner litigation around how TransCanada has been going about doing that. First Nations in, in Canada, Native uh, groups in uh, throughout the United States have had issues with a lack of consultation. And in Sa- South Dakota, uh, there's a – the public is mobilizing around a, a, a process to certify, um, to recertify the route for TransCanada in that state. But, you know, if, if you look at the, the large issues, Keystone XL is a very large pipeline, an 830,000 barrel a day pipeline that would unlock uh, the tar sands. And – Many landowners have serious concerns about having a pipeline shipping 
830,000 barrels a day of uh, tar sands every day through their land and, and across some of their sensitive rivers and, and water bodies. Mm-hmm. And these are not just Native American tribes. It's also farmers as well. No, that's right. Farmers and ranchers. Uh, in Nebraska, there's been a growing opposition of, of farmers and, and ranchers across the state. And in fact, uh, it's it's interesting. There was a uh, a football game several years ago that uh, during the game, uh, TransCanada ran uh, an ad advertising Keystone XL. And in a spontaneous moment, the entire crowd in the stadium booed. So that mm-hmm. just gives you a sign of how unpopular TransCanada has become in that state. Uh, and one of the big reasons is because uh, farmers and, and ranchers really value uh, their land. They know the importance of, of maintaining, you know, or preventing contamination of, of their, their ranches and their water sources. And there are some real concerns uh, with regard to Keystone XL's potential impact on, on that, in, in the, mm-hmm. both, both in terms of its, its climate impact, but also in terms of its, uh, the potential of, of tar sand spills. Well, and I think it's interesting because in many cases when proponents of the pipeline put a face to the opposition, they will make it the most hippie-looking <laughs> urbanite <laughs> protester in front of the White House. But in reality, what you have is a lot of, you know, salt-of-the-earth, you know, all-American kind of farmers, ranchers types of folks who are opposed to this that uh, are also the face of the opposition. So I think that's very interesting. Now, it, it's my understanding that the pipeline would run across a couple of major aquifers, and I'd like for you to talk to us about why that could be problematic. Well, that's a really good question, and it's, you know, Keystone XL's route currently runs through some of the most sensitive uh, parts of the largest uh, groundwater aquifer in the United States, the the Ogallala Aquifer. And, you know, this is an aquifer that is critical for uh, farming and ranching in the Plains states. And it it runs across eight states. But one of the the things for folks to, to, to know is, most of the aquifer's water is located in, in Nebraska. There's a, a very large region in and around a place called the Sand Hills that uh, has very sandy soil, uh, so it means it would be very, it's very porous and, and oil would soak into it. Uh, and the aquifer in some of these areas, it's you know, it starts at the at the uh, it starts at the surface and goes as far as a thousand feet down. So it's mm-hmm. it's really a national treasure in terms of uh, clean water. And Keystone would go right through the middle of it, and and that's a problem because uh, we found that tar sand spills are dramatically more damaging to water resources. We sadly had a, a incident incident in 2010 uh, with a pipeline spill uh, in Kalamazoo, Michigan which, you know, an Enbridge pipeline spilled over 800,000 gallons of uh, tar sands crude into the Kalamazoo River. And, you know, that has become the most expensive tar, uh, oil, onshore oil spill in U.S. history simply because uh, tar sands is very difficult to get out of a water body. It behaves differently. Uh, you know, over four years later and after a billion dollars have been spent on cleanup, over 40 miles of the Kalamazoo River is still contaminated with tar sands. 
Well, and and to kind of jump forward a bit, you know, I know that in order, tar sands are very thick, you know, very viscous. And so in order to get them to flow through a pipeline, some chemicals are also a part of that flow. And so I'm wondering, you know, if there's a pipeline leak, though, it's not just the tar sands. It's also this chemical cocktail. Is that correct? That's exactly right. One, I, I should have mentioned this when talking about Keystone, but Keystone is, is going to be moving a, a substance that's not what most people think about when they think about crude oil. As, as you say, tar sands bitumen is this very thick substance. It's a very low-grade uh, uh, oil. It's, you might even consider it kind of between oil and coal. And it's it's nearly solid at room temperature, so you can't move it through a pipeline uh, as it's produced. What producers have done is they have mixed this thick tar sands with uh, what are called natural natural gas liquid condensates, which are these very volatile uh, chemicals that allow the you know then the mixture is called diluted bitumen, but it's a somewhat unstable mixture. And uh, uh, the chemicals themselves contain, you know, high quantities of, of things like benzene and toluene and xylene, which are some of the most toxic uh, hydrocarbons around their acute carcinogens, uh, their neurotoxins. They're something that you, you do not want to be exposed to significant amounts or even, even relatively small amounts. And we found with tar sand spills, once the tar sands get out of the pipeline, uh, the volatile chemicals, you know, gas off, and uh, that poses an immediate health risk to uh, uh, to landowners or or anyone nearby. And then once those uh, those chemicals have gassed off, that leaves the heavy tar sands, which is actually heavier than water, to sink into water bodies if it if it if it uh, reaches one. And that's a problem because. All spill response uh, mechanisms tend to rely on the assumption that oil will float on water, Mm -hmm. and tar sands doesn't. Mm, I see. You know, oil has been in the news a lot lately in a number of different ways, and I'd like to help our listeners kind of connect the dots between some of the stories they've been hearing and better understand these oil-related headlines and how they all work together. Recently, there have been multiple instances in the U.S. and Canada involving train derailments that caused fires and oil spills. And in fact, there was an article this week in the Associated Press where the writer says, the Canadian government has warned the Obama administration that if pipelines like the controversial Keystone XL pipeline are not built, Canadian oil would instead continue to be shipped by rail cars. Anthony, are they truly thinking about shipping tar sands by rail? I mean, is the Keystone XL, you know, project supposed to be diverting, you know, tar sands from rail to pipeline? Give us some more insight on that. Yeah, that is a, a red herring. One thing to keep in mind is that the Canadian government has been really, one of its major policy priorities is building the Keystone XL pipeline. And the reason for that is that it knows without cheap transportation access to the Gulf Coast, it's simply not economic to move forward with many of the tar sands expansion projects it wants to build. And, you know, as as an example of that, you know, over the last year, nearly a million barrels of tar sands expansion has been canceled because of lack of pipelines. And most of that expansion was canceled by companies that were relying on Keystone to move their tar sands. 
So we're finding that you know when tar sands companies have a choice between rail and pipelines, uh, you know they're choosing to cancel projects if the pipelines aren't there rather than uh, moving their product by rail because rail is simply too expensive and technically difficult for them. A lot of that has to do with both their distance from uh, uh, refinery markets, the fact that they're some of the most expensive uh, sources of crude to, to produce already, and also the different nature of tar sands uh, makes it very difficult to get onto rail uh, trains. The few companies that have tried to make it work have uh, faced enormous obstacles, and in fact, the the first tar sands producer to to sign long term uh, contracts to ship its crude to the Gulf by rail has declared bankruptcy. So it's not you know when you look at what is moving on the railroads, it's not tar sands crude. It's actually this light volatile crude from North Dakota and Southern California. I mean sorry, North Dakota and Southern Canada uh, called Bakken crude. Mm-hmm. Uh, crude from from North Dakota composes about 80% of all uh, crude oil moved on rail today. And the other contenders are are crude from West Texas and Colorado and and places of that sort. So basically, you know, we do have a crude by rail issue. Uh, There is a major lack of regulations to or common sense safeguards to ensure that these these large unit trains moving the Bakken crude uh, don't have the sort of accidents we've been seeing. The answer to, to address those a- accidents is imposing uh, safety measures on uh, uh, crude by rail companies rather than build a, comp- uh, a pipeline that isn't going to take any of that crude off of the rail. And right. just you know, one final point, it is interesting that you know, producers in North Dakota have actually turned down two major pipeline proposals uh, over the last two years because they prefer to ship their product by rail. They, they like the flexibility it provides. It's, it's easier for them to do so. We simply haven't seen that in the tar sands. Uh, tar sands producers simply haven't been able to make rail work as a substitute for pipelines the way uh, North Dakota producers have. I see. Well, this is all amazing insight, and I'm really looking forward to continuing with this this interview, Anthony. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but there's so much more, folks, so don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. 
to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Anthony Swift. He's an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC. And we're talking about the Keystone XL pipeline. And you may think, why are we doing that? The president just vetoed that bill this week. Isn't it dead? Long, long process still ahead of us, folks. That's not the end. And in fact, uh, congressional congressional leaders have already promised to attach um, Keystone XL pipeline language to future bills to make the veto process of those bills even harder for the president. So this process is not over, and I think it's important for all of us to understand what this project is all about. Um, You know, I I imagine that many of our listeners, Anthony, have seen an oil rig, you know, a little piece of real estate and a, you know, little bobber going up and down, you know, bringing oil up from the surface. And it's probably not that alarming to see that. We've all seen one of those in action. But the extraction of tar sands, which is what uh, would be flowing through the Keystone XL pipeline, is very different. And I'd like for you to talk to us about what it means to extract oil in this manner. Yes, sure thing. And I think this is a, a critical point, which is, you know, tar sands are, are very different from uh, uh, conventional crude when it comes to the extraction process. I think for, for many listeners, uh, a better visual is a strip mine rather than, than a traditional oil derrick. Um, there are really two ways of, of producing tar sands. One involves, well, I should probably start with where the tar sands are located. They're actually located in the boreal forest of uh, northern Alberta, which is, you know, one of the the largest old-growth forest in the world. Uh, and to get at the tar sands, what producers do is they, they strip the forest. And they basically, you can, they build these tar sands mines, which involve, which basically involve stripping the earth uh, and, you know, digging these pits that go for miles, uh, hundreds of feet deep, um, to extract this gravelly substance, and uh, then they use natural gas and water to uh, to melt the tar sands out of the rock, out of the gravel. And what you end up with is, on one hand, this very low quality, you know, tar sands bitumen, and you know, an enormous amount of energy uh, spent to get the the bit- bitumen out. And uh, also an enormous amount of, of what are called tailings, which are you know the, the wastewater from uh, uh, from the water used to to get this stuff out. Uh, tailing 
each tar sands mine has a major, a very large tailing mine associated with it, and it's it's a toxic brew of chemicals. It contains heavy metals and and various petrochemicals, and there's really no plan to uh, uh, you know many of these these tailing ponds don't have linings or or anything, so mm-hmm. there's really no plan for uh, effectively dealing with a growing uh, uh, these growing lakes of toxic. Uh, sludge in the in the tar sands area, and in fact, we've new studies have come out showing that uh, many of the toxins from these tailing ponds are getting into the water supply and poisoning both the water supply and the food supply in the area. Uh, and the other way that they produce tar sands is basically uh, they you know do drill these major pro- they 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 also have to strip the uh, boreal forest, but they actually drill into the reservoir and have to to steam the reservoir underground. And while th- the appearance of this may may not look as destructive, it actually is much more carbon intensive than even the the, the uh, tar sands mines. And one of the big issues around tar sands production is it is the most carbon intensive crude on the planet to produce. So by producing tar sands, we're really uh, you know, oil is carbon-intensive in and of itself, but tar sands creates a more carbon-intensive ver- version of oil, which is a real problem in a world in which we know we need to move in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And I know that part of the reason that tar sands haven't been developed previously is because the price of a barrel of oil was fairly low. And uh, when the price of oil started to go up, then we started to see more and more interest in investing in tar sands production. But the price of oil has gone down. We've seen the price of gas go down lately. How does that impact, if at all, the economic feasibility of tar sands operations? It has a tremendous impact on on the feasibility of tar sands uh, projects. And to some extent, this is one of the reasons why um, tar sands are are a lose-lose proposition in many respects. I mean, the uh, they have an enormous environmental uh, cost. Um, they have a cost for all those who live in the tar sands region and along the transportation routes. Once it gets to refineries, the, the emissions are much much greater and, and more damaging. But at the same time, they're not particularly profitable, uh, certainly not profitable at prices at this level. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the break-even prices for uh, uh, tar sands projects, you know, many of them, require oil prices to be over $100 a barrel simply to break even. The problem is once you, know, once you build a tar sands facility, they, it's more like building a factory than, building a, uh, than drilling a well. There's an enormous amount of upfront investment. So once it's built, uh, much of the cost came in the upfront investment. If oil prices go down and stay low, um, it's still often more profitable for the company to uh, uh, keep production going than to shut down if it's already mm. been built. I and see. many of these projects can produce, I mean, this is another area in which tar sands differs from conventional crude. A, a conventional uh, oil well may produce for 10 or 15 years and, you know, it, it sort of runs as a bell curve. A tar sands project, once you build it, many of them can produce without decline for 40 years or more. Mm -hmm. So it really is if we build these projects now, we're locking in this very dirty, damaging source of energy for decades to come. 
Uh, and so that's why Keystone has become such a contentious issue, because at these low oil prices, having cheap transportation capacity becomes more uh, you know, an even bigger make-or-break issue for many companies deciding whether to put $10 billion into a new tar sands project or not. Let me ask you a really simple question that is kind of the everyday American question. If we build the pipeline, will gas prices go down? You know, Keystone would enable additional tar sands expansion, but it's important to know where this oil is intended to go. Um, you know, the reason why... Uh, the tar sands industry wants to get to use Keystone XL to get tar sands to the Gulf is because they want to have access to international markets. They want to, you know, they want to get them to the tar sands to uh, refineries that are exporting more than half of the the refined product that they're producing. And there are also plans to simply export raw tar sands from. Gulf Coast uh, ports to refineries in Europe and Asia, and that's already happening a little bit today. So, to some extent, this you know the additional volumes of of oil from from Keystone are directed more at the international market than the domestic market. There is a linkage there, but the the uh, studies that have been done and the State Department study has found that Keystone is not going to have a an impact on on U.S. oil prices or gas prices. So if we build the pipeline and the oil is refined in the U.S., there's no legal guarantee that the oil will only be sold in America? Because I know that this has been billed as an energy security you know, pipeline. Uh, but the, the bottom line is you know, the companies would be free to export the oil overseas. And, and I'm also wondering, who, who gets to decide that, where the oil goes once we've refined it here in the U.S.? That's a really good question. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because TransCanada was actually put on the spot in a congressional hearing in 2011 on this. And, uh, you know, when Congressman Markey uh, asked TransCanada's president whether uh, he could guarantee the oil from Keystone would stay in the United States, you know, after hemming and hawing, he finally said, no, he couldn't. And, uh, uh, and the reality is uh, Keystone XL is, I mean, reading industry statements, uh, looking at what the company's buying capacity on Keystone XL want to do with the crude, um, it's clear that Keystone XL is about providing access to uh, uh, the international markets for the tar sands industry. And you know, once Keystone XL is built, there's really nothing to do to nothing we can do to stop that. Uh, you know, Canadian crude isn't subject to an export ban. Uh, and in fact, Canadian crude is already being exported from some U.S. as ports. So, uh, in a in a large way, uh, Keystone is directed at, uh, at at export markets. Um, otherwise, you know, tar sands is getting into the U.S. Uh, Midwest uh, as it is. But again, the real the real reason for Keystone is to get it to uh, uh, to an international port. And I, I should mention that in Canada, you know, the industry's been trying to, to get tar sands to Canadian ports on the East Coast and West Coast, Coast for years, but hasn't been able to because Canadians have been opposing these pipelines. So to some extent, Keystone XL offers uh, the tar sands industry its best shot to get tar sands out of the U.S. and to the international market. 
Well, that goes to one of the questions that I had. Why doesn't Canada just refine their own tar sands? And then they can sell it to the U.S. or sell it to whoever they want to. I mean, why does it have to come through the U.S.? Well, I... I think it all has it all comes down to uh, uh, to cost and profit. I mean, the tar sands are located in a remote part of Canada, and it's it's very it's already very expensive to produce tar sands. I think industry looked at that possibility and, and determined that it would just cost too much to build refineries in Canada. It would still have to get the uh, the refined product out somehow. Uh, and though while there is some support in in Canada for that uh, that proposal, um, I, I don't think industry is is seriously looking at at, at doing that. So uh, uh, and it, it all comes down to the fact that um, it would cost them too much. Mm-hmm. Well, we have got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Anthony Swift, attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council in RDC. We're going to be talking a bit more about the refining process and who would be impacted by that should the Keystone XL pipeline be built. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad that you could tune in. If you're just joining us, let me catch you up for a moment. We're talking about the Keystone XL pipeline. The president just vetoed a bill that would allow the building of that project this week, but the process is far from over. Uh, there's still a lot more in the, the pipeline for the pipeline. Um, we have congressional leaders that want to add language about the pipeline to subsequent bills. The State Department is still reviewing the, the pipeline project and the president could okay the project on his own authority. So there's still uh, a lot of ground to cover before the Keystone XL pipeline can actually be put to rest. Um, you know, Anthony, last week there was an explosion at an ExxonMobil refinery here in California where I live. And it made me think about refining tar sands. A lot of people have talked about how dirty this form of oil is. If the Keystone XL pipeline were built, where would the tar sands be refined? And are there any additional human health or environmental risks to refining tar sands versus conventional crude? Yes, it's a really good question. When, uh, uh, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline goes to uh, Texas refineries, so it's pr- primarily going to be refined. The tar sands from the, the project is would be uh, primarily refined in refineries in the Port Arthur and East Houston area. And, you know, many of the communities in these refinery uh, zones are already being hit with uh, heavy uh, health impacts of existing refinery operations. But, you know, one thing that we've we found is that tar sands have, you know, a significantly higher heavy metal content. And there have been a number of, of studies that suggest that, that many of the the worst emissions in terms of human health impacts uh, in refineries are uh, are worse when it comes to, to tar sands refining. It's also much more energy intensive, so of course there's, there's a, a climate impact to that. And, you know, one of the things we found in pipelines uh, is that, you know, tar sands inherently is more corrosive than conventional crude, and that that issue becomes much more problematic in refinery environments where the temperatures are much hotter. So if, uh, you know, chemical reactions are much faster at, at higher temperatures, so corrosion issues in refineries are, are, are real unknown with tar sands. We know it's, it's much more corrosive in that, uh, in that environment, but we just don't know uh, what the long-term impact on refinery safety is going to be. Mm-hmm. Now, proponents of the Keystone XL pipeline refer to it as a job creation opportunity. And in fact, it, numerous labor unions who typically back Democrats have broken ranks with some of their allies to join Republicans on supporting this project. What is the NRDC's response to that job creation line of reasoning? Well, we just look at, at the company's own estimates, the, the estimates that TransCanada provided uh, the State Department. And, you know, what TransCanada said is that uh, Keystone XL would, would create about 2,000 uh, construction jobs for two years to build. And then afterwards, it would only require 35 people to operate. So in terms of a... Uh, a job creator that's that's equivalent to building a you know medium sized mall and operating a mcdonald's it's not a national job creator and to put that in perspective you know the the clean energy industry created over 180,000 jobs in the last quarter alone so uh, uh 
while Keystone has been built as this is this major job issues issue, the numbers simply don't support it. And when you look at the impacts that the pipeline could have on the you know agricultural sector in the plain state and uh, in harm to our climate, uh, it simply isn't worth that trade-off for just a few jobs. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that prior to the president's veto of this most recent bill, the EPA reviewed the bill. And I'd like for you to spend some time talking to us about what their findings were and what comments they made on the project. Yeah, so EPA took a look at, uh, I mean, they they reviewed both Keystone XL and and, uh, a previous environmental assessment of, uh, of Keystone XL by the State Department. And, you know, there were really, I mean, it said a number of things, but there were two big findings. One is that it found that uh, the expansion of uh, the tar sands would significantly uh, exacerbate or, or, har- or increase climate change. Um, and uh, two, that Keystone XL was likely to substantially uh, increase tar sands expansion. So it really did link... Keystone XL with uh, expanded tar sands production and associated carbon emissions. And why that's significant is that the state, um, the president, uh, in you know June 2013 at Georgetown, said that he wouldn't approve Keystone XL if it was found uh, to have a uh, substantial uh, to, to substantially increase our uh, uh, carbon pollution problem. And EPA are you know. Uh, nation's preeminent climate experts said that it would. Right. Well, you know, I know that a lot of proponents of the pipeline argue that it would not increase the U.S.'s greenhouse gas emissions by any substantial amount. And so, um, you know, not all Americans put their faith in the EPA. I mean, uh, you know, it's a government agency, like so many, that has had uh, some credibility issues over time. How can everyday Americans be sure who to believe when it comes to the climate impact of this project? By what criteria should we evaluate the credibility of this conflicting information? Well, I, uh, that is a key question, and I think that you know you, you do have to look at the the interests of the people uh, making claims. And if you look at the the folks that are saying that Keystone XL won't have a significant climate impact, often it's people who have had a, a dodgy dodgy record when it comes to even recognizing that climate change is an issue we need to deal with. Uh, and it is almost entirely people who have something financial to gain with this project, whether it be, you know, the very uh, tar sand-centric Canadian government, the province of Alberta that owns the resources, or the tar sands industry itself and its its various lobbying arms. Uh, if you look at the other side, I mean, just a week ago, over 90 scientists and economists uh, who have no financial stake on either side uh, wrote the administration asking for the rejection of Keystone XL because of its uh, climate and uh, because of its climate impacts. Uh, scientists in uh, or economists in in London recently did a evaluation of which uh, oil, gas, and coal reserves can be exploited in a world in which we maintain a safe climate. Uh, you know, a two degree cell minimizing warming to two degrees Celsius, 
And it found that tar sands does not make it on that list of, of reserves we can exploit uh, while uh, stabilizing climate change. I mean, academia, experts, um, neutral observers have all really uh, identified and acknowledged Keystone XL's role in, in uh, increasing climate change. And many, many of the people who deny it again, have a financial stake in this project. Mm -hmm. Now, because this pipeline would cross international borders, the State Department is involved in the review process. And this has been taking quite a while. Um, Now, folks are saying that that process is nearly complete. But talk to us about the process that the State Department has been going through and some of the issues that the State Department is considering when looking at this pipeline project. Yeah, and you know it's it is interesting. Uh, there have been some delays in the process, but one thing that's not necessarily uh, it's not front and center is the fact that oftentimes the delays were were caused by TransCanada. You know, uh, I, I will one of the principal delays was was caused by the fact that TransCanada said the only route it could use for Keystone XL was the one that went right through the sand hills, uh, and you know when uh, the president delayed the uh, Keystone XL review process to allow Nebraska to propose an alternate route. TransCanada then went back and said that, you know, it actually could pick any route that it wanted and that this wouldn't be a problem. So to some extent, if, if TransCanada had been a little more forthcoming in uh, the early stages, I think that a decision could have been reached faster. But now that we're in the uh, final stages of the review, State Department is concluding what's called the National Interest Determination Process. And that, that process is going to look at Keystone's impact on, uh, on the environment, on the climate, on energy security, oil prices, employment, uh, and economic development. And all of those issues really do support a rejection of Keystone XL. Uh, for many of the reasons that we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, here's one thing that crosses my mind. I mean, just because currently TransCanada is owned by our friendly neighbors to the north, Canada, um, that doesn't mean it couldn't be sold. And we have had ongoing strife with Russian oil companies and sanctions there, um, you know, Chinese oil interests and what have you. And we know that some of their businesses are expanding overseas. Is there any reason to think that, you know, if we built this pipe for TransCanada, that TransCanada couldn't be sold to some other national interest and hence become a security problem in and of itself? Well, well, certainly. I I think that, you know, uh, to some extent... Assuming that the tar sands is a Canadian, you know, a friendly Canadian project, is uh, it's a bit of a, a dangerous assumption, and it's because many of the co- the companies involved in the tar sands aren't Canadian. Actually, I think the majority are owned by international interests, um, and some of the companies producing the tar sands today are are uh, companies based in China and, and other places. So, uh, uh, to some extent, I, I think personalizing the pipeline uh, would be a mistake for the very reasons you suggest. One, uh, the interest involved aren't all in Canada. And two, you know, these projects can be bought and sold. They are, you know, long-term pieces of infrastructure and commodities for these companies. Once built, they can transfer hands. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, 
more to the point, there's an ongoing debate in Canada as to whether uh, tar sands expansion has been in the country's interest. You know, one of the things that uh, has come up in the international uh, sphere is the fact that Canada is, is becoming a climate pariah. You know, they, Canada agreed to reduce its emissions by 18 percent uh, by 2020. Uh, the, it, it was the same target that the U.S. had. It was actually 17 percent, excuse me. And uh, the U.S. is on track to meeting its target. Canada is going to completely miss it. And mm. the reason is entirely because of the country's expanding tar sand sector. So Canada is kind of moving. It's, it's tarnishing its image for, for being a progressive, environmentally uh, uh, forward country. Mm-hmm. Um, and Keystone XL and the the country's commitment to tar sands expansion has been the cause of that. And I think that's an issue of increasing controversy north of our border. And, and we don't hear that much about that here in the U.S. And I think that's an interesting um, point. It's also, I'm sure, what's causing you know Canadians to to probably oppose doing their own refining. And I mean, they've got plenty of shoreline they could export out of some of their eastern or western ports if they wanted to do that. Um, so that's that's a really interesting perspective. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about kind of a sticky wicket when it comes to the Keystone XL. Uh, pipeline project, and that is public opinion. Right now, it's in favor of Keystone XL, and we're going to talk to Anthony about that. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we're talking about the Keystone XL Pipeline, and our guest is Anthony Swift, an attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council in RDC. And Anthony, we've been talking about all of the reasons that uh, you know the, the Keystone XL Pipeline is being proposed, um, why some of those ideas uh, have not found favor with environmentalists and others, uh, landowners in the way of the pipeline and what have you. But the truth is, a lot of public opinion polls have been taken regarding the XL pipeline. And many of those polls show that a lot more Americans favor the project than those who oppose it. Some of those same polls also show that a large amount of Americans don't feel they have enough information to form an opinion. Hopefully we can get them to all tune into this episode and and rectify that situation. But actually a recent article in the Huffington Post said, proponents of the project feel more strongly than opponents. 31% support the pipeline strongly, while just 12% strongly oppose it. And we live in a democracy, Anthony, so public opinion does matter. What are your thoughts on the polling data, and what does it say to you about the outreach efforts on the part of NRDC and other groups? Well, it's interesting you bring up that poll. There, there, that, that, I think, was uh, done in, in the end of, of last year. And it is true that over the last few years, uh, when polled, many Americans have, uh, have said that they would support a Canadian pipe, oil pipeline uh, through the United States. But one of the issues with that poll is it, does, you know, it, it hasn't really alerted uh, many Americans who haven't been paying attention to this controversy of the reasons why uh, it has become such a controversial project. You know, folks don't know it's moving tar sands or even what tar sands are. But I will say there have been a, a number of polls that have recently come out uh, this year in, in January, uh, you know, as Congress has made Keystone, uh, for better or worse, uh, the number one priority for, uh, uh, for this, this Congress. And uh, uh, what has happened is, you know, we've seen a lot of the support for Keystone begin to evaporate. You know, polling for, for Keystone XL in the end of last year was in the 60%. You know, you had over 60% of Americans said they supported it, but a lot of that was soft. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an AP poll and an NBC poll uh, done earlier this year show that now it's closer to 30% of Americans uh support it, 30% oppose, and the others are undecided. So most of, you know, a lot of the support for the project have, have moved to the undecided column. And when looking at the energy uh, behind the supporters and, and uh, folks who are in opposition, I think all you have to do is, is look at the, the people on the streets. I mean, Keystone brought a large number of the 400,000 demonstrators on the, the streets in New York just a few months ago. And uh, it was one. I mean, it was one of the critical issues in uh, uh, the rally in D.C. in 2013 that brought 50,000 people out. And you know, you wouldn't see. I mean, to some extent, we haven't seen this kind of public outcry uh, for decades in the United States. And uh, the reason it's possible is because Americans who 
know about this project uh, really don't like it. And I, I think that's another thing to say is, you know, we've done uh, polling that shows that, uh, you know, if you give uh, citizens both sides of the issue, provide the, the, the jobs arguments, the energy security arguments that industry makes, and provide the issues with the environment and climate uh, that have caused opposition to the pipeline, most people understand why uh, it's not a project we should build. And it's just a matter of breaking through the white noise. If only Kim Kardashian were adding Keystone XL pipeline comments to her Instagram account, we'd all be educated. We'd all know what's going on. It's just so difficult to get through the white noise of everything else that's going on in the world to well, help people reach that level of understanding, I think. And, and I might add, it's, it's not just white noise. I mean, the reality is uh, the oil industry and the tar sands industry have, have been spending hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, uh, getting their message out. And the reality is they, they have a lot of money that they can make if this project moves forward. And the folks opposing this project are really opposing it because it's not in the public interest. And we simply can't, uh, you know, we don't have the money to, uh, uh, you know, blanket the TV media with hundreds of millions of dollars of ads the way they do. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've noticed proponents of the pipeline um, have been saying, and this is coming from both sides of the aisle, so we're going to hear about this in the presidential election coming up, um, I'm sure. It's that they say, it's just one pipeline. It's an extension of thousands of miles of existing pipelines that we already have. What's the fuss over this one? What do you say to that line of reasoning, Anthony? Well, I, I would say two things. I mean, one is... You know, we do have thousands of miles of pipeline, but very little of, of that pipeline network is as big as Keystone XL would be. This is a massive pipeline. Uh, and two, it really does represent a, I mean, th this pipeline represents a choice to exploit the dirtiest form of, of crude oil for 50 years to come. I mean, it's a 50-year piece of infrastructure. Uh, the urgency around this pipeline is is around the fact that we, you know, the best science is telling us we simply cannot afford to keep doing what we're doing and uh, uh, avoid catastrophic climate change. And Keystone XL is not just keeping; it, it's not just a status quo project. It actually takes us backwards. So, you know, I, I think it's a recognition that to begin to address climate change, we have to stop making the, the issue worse. And mm -hmm. Keystone XL would certainly do that. I'm going to ask us to step out of the environmental protection echo chamber for a second, because that's where you and I both live a lot of our lives. And let's talk to Joe Sixpack in Paducah, Kentucky, somewhere. All right. Why should everyday Americans, especially those who live far away from where the pipeline would actually be built, why should they care about this issue? Well, they should care about this issue because, I mean, I would look at the drought that hit the Midwest last year. Uh, it has had enormous consequences on places like Kentucky, the agricultural output. You know, half of our wheat crop was destroyed. These are the sort of things that are happening uh, on a more frequent basis because of, of climate change. It's, it's affecting people today. Uh, you know, the heat waves are coming in. The, you know, the, the president or the administration recently did a, a climate assessment, which, which did found, find that, you know, climate change is having enormous impacts on the health and of, of, uh, of our population today. It's, it's 
having it's damaging our economy and it's also you know one of the things that uh folks across the country should be aware of is you know in many ways our investment in fossil fuel uh infrastructure and in economy based on fossil fuels is preventing you know the resurgence of of a clean energy economy and when you look at economic development a dollar invested in clean energy generates four times as many jobs as a dollar invested in uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. So if we want to have a vibrant economy with a strong manufacturing base, it actually behooves us all to uh, push projects that take us into the energy of the 21st century rather than uh, sticking us with projects like uh, Keystone XL. Well, and talk about those clean energy jobs. How do they differ in terms of domestic jobs and uh, pay as opposed to oil jobs or fossil fuel economy jobs? Well, with fossil fuel economy jobs, I mean, they often tend to be like Keystone. You know, there's an initial construction build, but once it's built, you know, it only requires 35 people to operate. The resource is coming from another country. Most of the benefits are are, uh, hitting industry groups in that country. Um, whereas when you look at renewable energy jobs and clean energy energy jobs, you're talking about you know uh, the the manufacture of so- solar energy uh, projects, wind power projects are very uh, man hour intensive. So a lot of the money is spent on actually the employment. Uh, many of the technologies uh, are built in the U.S., developed in the U.S., and the factories can come to the U.S. to build these things if we uh, generate the the market. In addition, you know, building clean energy is going to require enormous infrastructure investment. Uh, to, to electrify vehicles, we'll need more transmission lines. And we need uh, that desperately. And I'm so sorry, Anthony, we've got to go. It's been wonderful having you on. I could talk to you all day long, and I'm glad that you were on the show. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.